Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. I'm going to start the podcast today by just saying, if you're seething with rage over the election right now, just stop. <laughs> just just stop, stop this podcast, stop listening. Um, if you are thinking that like the world is going to go to an end, there's, there's absolutely no nuance for you. This is a black and white kind of thing. Uh, you know, what America did is either the greatest thing ever or like the most horrific crime uh, this nation's ever committed against itself. You, you, you need to stop listening to this podcast right now. I am, I'm not going to help you. I'm going to make your life worse. Uh, I, and, and really, for our relationship, uh, you should not listen to the rest of this podcast. For the rest of you, uh, regardless of how you voted, welcome. Uh, today's November 10th. Uh, a couple days after the election. I'm back in the office now for the first time in a while. I was uh, out on the road um, this week in Killeen, Texas, which is down by Fort Hood, the south part of Texas, giving a talk. Uh, I, I spent election night in a hotel room by myself. Uh, I got there at like uh, 4 o'clock and actually ordered pizza and a big two liter of, uh, of, of pop and sat in my hotel room and watched things till two in the morning uh, with an ice bag on my mouth uh, on Monday. I'd gotten uh, that, that tooth thing that's been bothering me and gotten that uh, little surgery out of the way and they had drilled a, a screw up into my jaw. So I was trying to kind of get the swelling down uh, so I could talk coherently the following day. And I sat and watched it all. And, and I've got to tell you, we, we're, we're going to, I have no notes here. We're going to talk about this a little bit today. I, uh, I felt for a while uh, that this is a lot like uh, Jesse Ventura. And, and, I, and I want to give you some context for that for those of you outside of Minnesota. I can't remember what year it was. I want to say my brain wants to say it was 1998, but it might have been 2002. I can't, I can't specifically remember. I want to say 98, though, but... Uh, we had in uh, Minnesota a talk show host, a former wrestler, a guy named Jesse Ventura, uh, a guy whose who's wrestling moniker was Jesse the Body Ventura. Uh, his whole thing was he'd dress up uh, and have feather boas. And uh, he had, you know, moved back to Minnesota after his pro wrestling career was done. And he, he became a, a rather uh, glib uh, talk show host. Um, you know, I, 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 back in those days, I used to listen to talk radio. Talk radio was this amazing outlet for people who were very frustrated with mainstream media. This is before, uh, really the internet before, you know, Twitter and Facebook before even like really before Fox news was a big thing. And you were literally getting your news from CNN or like three other networks, uh, talk radio was this amazing outlet because there were people on there who said things you didn't hear on TV. <laughs> they they said uh, ideas and thoughts that were in many ways uh, kind of counterculture, at least counter to uh, the mainstream culture. Uh, you know, ideas like I remember Jesse Ventura was very pro marijuana legalization, which, you know, if you had had some kind of panel discussion on CNN or you know, on, on ABC uh, Nightline or something like that, y you would have been, y you would not have been likely to see someone who was going to be pro marijuana legalization. Yet here was Jesse kind of every morning in drive time, 
bringing up this topic and talking about it in ways that were, you know, not all that intelligent, but, but, you know, filled a niche of thought that really wasn't represented anywhere else. There was a lot of this and talk radio was a, a really exciting place at that point in time. So we have in, in Minnesota, this independence party, uh, a, a third party. Uh, and, and I don't know why we do, uh, you know, we, we, we have uh, not the Democrat Party here in Minnesota. We have the Democrat Farm Labor Party, the DFL. Until 2004, we actually had no Republican Party either. We had the IR Party, the Independent Republican Party, party that had, had added independent to its name after Watergate just to signify like, hey, we're not with them. We're a, we're a separate kind of organization here. In 2004, we actually hear, and, and I say we, I was actually kind of identified, not kind of, I did identify as Republican back then. Uh, the thought was, and I was not for this, by the way, but the thought was that uh, we were going to ride the coattails of George W. Bush uh, to re-election, and we should just go back to being uh, essentially uh, uh, more closely aligned with the National Party. And so the I got dropped. And so now we have the DFL and, and the Republican Party. And then we have this Independence Party here in Minnesota. Uh, they had run candidates that had been successful to one degree or another. Uh, there's always, you know, a certain level of intellectual discontent, and, and they did a, a good job of kind of catalyzing that. But then along comes Jesse Ventura. Now, uh, Jesse Ventura was really hard to take seriously. Um, you know, he didn't really have a, a lot of campaign issues to t to talk about. I, I If I think back and like distinctly remember one thing he was for, he hated the uh, gas, um, not gas, the uh, the licensing tab fees. And he, he hated the like progressive nature of them. So if you drove uh, a $50,000 Lexus or a $500 beater of a car, Back in the old days, back in the pre-Jesse Ventura days, your uh, tabs, your license tabs on your car uh, were different. The cost of that was going to be uh, more based on the, the value of your car. And so if you had an expensive car, you were going to pay a lot for tabs. And if you had a cheap, junky car, you weren't going to pay very much at all. That, that's kind of how we do things in Minnesota, actually. And sometimes I question it. Sometimes I just like say, okay, that's, that's who we are, whatever. Well, Jesse was really ticked about this. And his argument was, hey, we all impact the road the same. If you're driving, you know, a, a Lexus or you're driving a, a old rusty Dodge, you're having the same impact on the road. We're using this money to fund roads. Why shouldn't the fees be the same? And, you know, there's a certain logic to that. I grasp it's it wouldn't be like my major campaign issue, but I remember it being one of his. And so, uh, you know, when he got he he, uh, you know, was out talking about things like that during the campaign. Running against him was the Republican, uh, independent Republican at that time, Norm Coleman, who would later go on to be a, a senator from Minnesota. I, I, I think it's fair to say probably the most popular politician in the state at the time, or at least perceived to be the most popular. He was the mayor of uh of um, St. Paul. Uh, so a, a rather in today's like blue red context, a very blue, deep blue city. I mean, a very liberal place. He was the Republican mayor. He's a guy from New York, uh, but had chosen to, to move here to Minnesota. He'd still spoke in a way like a, with a little bit of a New York accent, 
Uh, yet people, you know, embraced him and thought this is kind of a, a uniting kind of guy. Look, he can get elected uh, with conservative values in a pretty liberal city. He can govern effectively. He would be a, a great governor. And I, th- I think the idea was that he was really kind of like a shoe in for it, at least, you know, as a Republican, I, I kind of thought that at the time. Running against him, though, was Skip Humphrey. And if you don't recognize the name Skip, you certainly should recognize the name Humphrey. Uh, this was the son of Hubert Humphrey, uh, the longtime Minnesota political icon. Uh, you know, once uh, vice president, uh, presidential ambitions, um, you know, an and, and icon really nationally in the Democratic Party, uh, along with Walter Mondale, probably our, our two most successful national politicians from this state. Uh, Skip Humphrey was the, uh, on the DFL side of the ticket. So you have Norm Coleman versus Skip Humphrey. And then you have this wild card, Jesse Ventura. And early on, nobody took Jesse seriously. I mean, it, 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 he, his campaign was a joke and we all laughed about it. And, you know, they allowed him in the debates. And at times you would you would get this uh, reaction where you go, huh, well, OK, that's a that's a different take. But there are a lot of times where, you know, the the Republican would say, well, I want uh, to do, you know, this. And the Democrat would say, well, I want to do the opposite. And Jesse would say, why can't we just split this down the middle and and have it make sense? You know, come on, people. Um, And he was also, you know, he had done the talk radios thing. So he was very good at kind of triangulating, right? Like these guys are all in cahoots together. Um, These guys are. And I'm starting to like slide into a, a Jesse impression there. I'm not trying to, but it was, you know, these guys are all out to get you. These guys are all uh, in this together. You know, the two parties are colluding against you. Vote for Jesse. Uh, as time went on, his, you know, we, the polling wasn't that ubiquitous back then as it is today, although there were plenty. Hang on a sec. I got I to gotta do the diet do here. Um, Polling wasn't as ubiquitous, you know, so you you didn't get like daily or weekly poll updates, but there was, you know, some indications that Jesse's support was not insignificant, you know, it was going to be double digit perhaps. And that was kind of uh, a a strange thing because nobody really knew, you know, is this going to take from Republicans? Is this going to take from the DFL? You know, who, who's going to benefit? Who's going to be harmed from, from these Jesse voters? We, We didn't really know. Nobody really knew. Nobody really knew what the Jesse voter was like. I mean, I everybody had some in their family, right? You could point to, you know, the uncle or the the, the cousin or what have you that was, you know, oh, I'm for Jesse. Um, but it was they they didn't really form like a coherent kind of body of people. Um, but you got the sense that there was some discontent. Some people were really ticked off that things weren't going right. But you know, each major party had its own narrative on how to fix that. And and for me, I was very like you know, falling in line with the Republican version of how to fix things. And to me, it seemed fairly logical and straightforward. And why would you, you know, why would you consider this Jesse guy? Now, my wife is a reporter and at the time was the the political reporter for the the newspaper she works for. Still still is uh, today, but in a different, the news business has changed a ton since this period of time. But she traveled around with these candidates uh, when they were in the the area of her newspaper, uh, you know, rode around with Norm Coleman, rode around with Humphrey, uh, and attended a bunch of rallies with Jesse Ventura. She came home one day and she told me Jesse's going to win. 
I see you're you're insane. Like it's not, you know, I love you, I respect you, you're very intelligent uh and perceptive, but you're you're wrong. Like there's no way that's going to happen. And she kept saying, "Yeah, he's he's going to win." And her kind of analysis, uh her her prediction was based on the fact that she would go to these rallies where you know, Norm Coleman would show up and go speak at a, an, an elderly home and, you know, there'd be 20 people there, 40 people there. They could they could get a room towards the end of the campaign. You know, they could get a hundred people, a couple hundred people to show up. Skip Humphrey, much the same thing. You know, they, they'd roll into town and they'd have their crew there setting things up ahead of time. They'd do their photo ops and all that. But Jesse would show up somewhere and there'd be thousands of people, just like, you know, oceans of people there. And she said, this is... This is a phenomena. It's it's not a candidate. It's a it's a phenomena. There, there's something else going on here. Um, you know, people want change, and this guy is is tapping into something that the two parties just are not grasping right now. It's funny because I remember in late in the campaign there was a an ad, and I laughed. I, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was really good. So Jesse, in his pro wrestling career, had been Jesse the Body Ventura. And he did this, uh, he did this TV commercial and I, I can't think of the statue. It's like the thinker, right? <laughs> I had this buddy in the army, uh, when we would, you know, in the army, you're, you're around guys like naked all the time. And, uh, this is kind of funny. He would, he would do the thinker pose, uh, you know, after he got out of the shower and it was, it was hilarious. It was one of those things that would like put us all in the stitches. Well, I'm like a few years removed from, from that. And, uh, here's Jesse Ventura naked right like nude on television in the pose of the thinker and right this is tv so they don't show like private parts but they do this camera that circles around him standing on this pedestal in the thinker pose jesse ventura and it says you know something to the the line of like he's no longer jesse the body he's now jesse the mind ventura And I remember just, just like, this is hilarious. This is a joke. Like th- there's no way that this is going to happen. And then of course, you know, I think everybody listening probably knows what happened. Uh, election night come and here's this huge shocker. Uh, Jesse Ventura comes out of nowhere and, and wins the governorship of the state of Minnesota. They interviewed um, Norm Coleman the next day. I, re- I remember distinctly. He said, if you would told me, uh, six months ago that I was going to beat a guy named Humphrey by whatever percentage points it was. It was a, it was a healthy margin, 6%, 8%. He said, if you would have told me I was going to beat a guy named Humphrey by 8%, he said, I would have told you I was the next governor of Minnesota. He goes, I'm just, I'm just stunned. And there was this, there was this feeling and I'm, I'm feeling this right now today, right? I'm feeling this now yesterday and the night before there's this feeling that you get, uh, I'm less plugged into the politics today than I was back then. Back then I, I was vested in the party and in the platform and in the process and in the, the caucus and the candidates and in a way that I am not today. I'm, I'm very much not vested. I had, I had nothing personally on the line in this election in terms of uh, energy I had poured into a party or a candidate. Uh, but, but I, I'm looking around at people I know who did and the the feelings that I'm getting from them are a, a very similar to what I felt and what I saw others feel back then. It's like, what happened? What just happened? Like, what is going on? H- how is this possible? I I I I want to 
tell you a little bit about what happened after Jesse was elected. Um, because in retrospect, I will say this right now. I actually think from a policy standpoint, Jesse Ventura was the best governor Minnesota's had in my lifetime. And I know there's there's lots of people who are going to argue with that. But I'll tell you what I watched the guy do. And I'm, I'm not suggesting this is what's going to happen now, but I'm, I'm just telling you like this, this is what happened here in Minnesota. Uh, he literally looked around. And he said, I don't know anything to anybody. I don't know anything to Republicans. I don't owe anything to Democrats. I am my own man. I got elected Jesse by myself. I'm going to do this my way. And he named uh, what I thought was the best cabinet that Minnesota has has, has had in my lifetime. I, I, I can't think of a better one. He named great people to those positions in government. And then he listened to them and he actually took their advice, um, you know, in a, in a CEO kind of way. He said, you know, hey, transportation, what, what should we be doing here? Um, hey, natural resources, what, what you guys are the experts. Tell, give me a policy. Tell me what we should do. And I saw him again and again and again with his budget, uh, you know, with his different budgets, with his different policies, laying out what was not like a moderate approach. It was not like a split the baby approach. It wasn't like, you know, here's what one side wants and here's what the other side wants. It was the approach that everybody knew needed to happen, but no party, because of the way they were kind of beholden and aligned, could really do, right? For example, uh, license tab fees. <laughs> uh, you know, this, this, this kind of like quirky obsession that he had. We now today still have a progressive license tax fee. I mean, we, we still do, but the disparity is not as huge as it was. Right. It's actually a little bit flatter of a fee. Now, you may find that is not fair at all. And that doesn't make any sense. Fine. That's OK. Uh, on my old junky truck that has 270,000 miles, I pay like forty five dollars a year in license tab fees. Uh, when I got a brand new car, uh, you know, 10 years ago or eight years ago, whatever it was, I was paying like three hundred dollars a year in license fees. It's still progressive to a degree, but but not the way that it, it was. That that was like something he set out to do. And and what he wound up getting is support from people on both sides of the aisle for these policies and got them through that way. It it was really this weird period of time where the fringes of the parties stopped mattering. Uh, they, 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 they mattered less and I'm not going to call it a golden era. It certainly wasn't. And Jesse did more. I mean, Jesse didn't run for reelection. He ran one, he served one term. I, I don't see how he could have won reelection. Uh, he did more things in those four years just to tick everybody off. Uh, he, he, I, I look at his four years and I say, from a policy standpoint, the guy was brilliant. And he, he just did a great, I mean, maybe he himself wasn't brilliant, but he surrounded himself with brilliant people and he made really good decisions and he brought in, you know, and, and, and kind of promoted policies that made a lot of sense, a lot, a lot of sense. When it comes to him personally, he was like this, you know, hand grenade, like waiting to go off. Right. Like I remember once he said, um, religion uh, is a crutch for the weak minded, um, Great line if you're a talk radio show host wanting to get callers. Uh, not a great line if you are a, a governor wanting to have a certain amount of political capital that you can you know, leverage to get good policies passed. Um, he, over time, just destroyed himself. And his, it was his mouth, really, 
uh, and these things that he just couldn't stop saying that eroded his credibility to the point where he became the laughing stock that that people thought he would be. I'm going to I'm going to like I said, I don't have any notes, so I don't really know where this conversation is going to go. But it, it just occurred to me that we have kind of another example of this in Minnesota that's gone a very different way. Uh, Al Franken is our senator. And, and I'll just say right off the bat, I, I'm, I've never voted for Al Franken. Uh, I've, I've always voted for his opponents. I am generally not a, a Democrat voter. I don't vote DFL. Uh, I, 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 I just don't. Um, the last election I did vote for actually, three, I'll say this, uh, I voted for a couple of DFLers in the last campaign, uh, one of which won. Um, but I did that because I like intimately knew all the candidates. Like I knew them as, as individuals and, uh, just I could not vote for the Republican. Um, but Al Franken, so I'm, I'm going to tell this story. And the reason I said I haven't voted for him because I'm going to say some good things about him. Uh, I don't say these things as like a, a, a supporter of his. I say these things as someone who sat back and watched it. When Al Franken ran for Senate for the first time, there was this sense that, uh, again, a little bit like Jesse, this is a joke, right? This is a, a comedian. What, what does he know about politics? You know, what does he know about being a Senator? Senate is supposed to be this like August body. This guy is not Senate material. He's, he's a joke. He's going to embarrass us. And certainly throughout the campaign, uh, a lot of what they did, and this, this incidentally was Norm Coleman, uh, the guy who uh, lost the governorship, went on to become a senator, uh, and, and then you know actually beat uh, Paul Wellstone after in the uh, in the election where Paul Wellstone uh, died in the plane crash uh, just a couple of weeks before the election. They put Walter Mondale up after this. Um, kind of crazy memorial service that became overtly very political and the election all of a sudden swung in Norm Coleman's way. Uh, he became our Senator. Uh, Al Franken was essentially trying to get uh, Paul Wellstone's seat back in the DFL category. A lot of the ads that, um, that the Coleman campaign ran kind of highlighted the fact that Norm, that Al Franken was a, a, a joke, right? Al Franken was a, a, a comedian and they would they would show these ads of him being kind of like crazy, like out of control. I remember one ad, and it really backfired on them, by the way. Uh, I, I remember one ad where it you know it has like the dark music, and they they kind of tint the thing so it looks a little dark and bad. And it shows Al Franken having this like what looked like a spasmodic fit, like screaming and yelling, like Adolf Hitler kind of style into the microphone, you know. Um, and it was, you couldn't hear what he was saying. It was a voiceover, but he looked like crazy and out of control. The, the Franken campaign came out with an ad shortly thereafter, uh, that said like, you know, here, Coleman's telling you this here, here's let, let's play this quote for you. And it was actually a beautiful story that he told about, uh, Paul Wellstone and it, I, I can't remember the details of the story, but the, the specific part that you know, the Coleman campaign focused on where he looked like he was all irate and stuff was him impersonating a very passionate Paul Wellstone talking about a, a, a deeply like personal issue. And it was very touching. And you're like, Oh my gosh, you know, it, 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 I think it, it affected people a lot. It was a, it was a great counter ad to what actually was a great ad. So Al Franken won that election in 
what was really the 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 coin toss election. I, I was doing political commentary on the radio here at the time, and this was one of those where uh, election night it was within like a few hundred votes, and it the recount actually took until I want to say it took until January. And the entire balance of the the Senate was in doubt. I, I, this is my recollection. I could be off a little bit on that. But I remember like some of the balance of power being in doubt because was it going to be Norm Coleman or Al Franken? And the reality was they had this like really expensive recount with, the, you know, the crazy our version of hanging chads. You know, was this a vote or was it not? Uh, the, the point that I tried to make at the time on the radio was that, you know, the the margin of error in counting is greater than the margin of victory. And so essentially what you have is a coin toss election, you know, just toss a coin and, and, and that will decide it because we, we are split evenly. Well, in the recount, uh, Al Franken won uh, uh, again. He was, I, I want to say he was barely ahead on election night. And then he was like slightly less ahead at the recount and he became our, our Senator until this really this last six months of this election campaign. And even then, uh, in a mild, mild way, Al Franken has been, um, I'm going to, I'm going to say this not from a policy standpoint, although I I found myself agreeing with him on a number of policies. And I I do, you know, I, I do think he's a, he's a fascinating guy, but I will say from a temperament standpoint, he has been nothing like what I thought he would be. He, he, He has not been a jokester. He has not been uh, the butt of the jokes. He he has not, um, if he has done anything in that Senate seat, he has actually, I think, honored not only the memory of Paul Wellstone, uh, who, by the way, I also didn't never voted for, but did admire as a person, uh, but has really, I I think, elevated the dignity of the seat and the, the dignity of a Senate in a way that I don't think anybody who looked at him as a comedian transferring into a Senate seat would have thought possible, right? That, that's just not, that's not, th- this guy is, is a jokester. He's going to be a joke. He's going to embarrass our state. He's been the exact opposite. He has been a, a very good Senator, a, a very good Senator uh, from a, from a character standpoint. I don't think there's any question. Again, we don't necessarily agree on policy, uh, you know, but, but I'm standing back saying this is a guy with, with some character and, and has done a good job in that sense. So I, uh, I get up, you know, Wednesday morning after the election, I stayed up like really too late and had to get up early and give a talk. And <laughs> it was a dumb move, but I, I, I really wanted to, I mean, it felt like a historic night. It felt like a, something I wanted to watch. And I, I really have been struggling the last, uh, the the last few months. I mean, I'm not gonna pretend this has been harder for me than anybody else. This has been a a brutally painful election season for anyone who cares about the direction of this country. Uh, the, the, the primary season is always painful, um, because you're, you're not really getting at things of substance generally. But this general election campaign in particular was just just painful, right? Just one kind of gut punch after another. And, and I'm assuming that all of you who are deeply partisan are gone now, right? All of you who stood up and said, uh, Hillary Clinton is the greatest candidate that we could have for, for the United States. You're, you're not listening right now. And for those of you who are like diehard Trump supporters and, and no matter what happened or what he said or what he did, 
you were going to vote Trump. I, I hope you're not listening now either because I thought both of these candidates were deeply flawed, to, really terrible, despicable people uh, in a way that I just described Al Franken as like a good person. I, I think these people are the, both uh, the candidates that we had to vote for at the major parties today were, were despicable. They were they were terrible people. Right. So I got up this the, uh, on Wednesday morning and the, the reaction amongst my friends and really the, the, the conversation over the last few months has has been to look at these people who I think are very despicable in many ways. And then equate these people, uh, the, these these two candidates, with this broad mass of humanity that has been forced to choose between them, right? So if if you support Donald Trump, you are automatically uh, a, a deep racist, a, a terrible bigot. You hate Muslims. You want to see them ex- expelled from the country. Every every like off color flippant remark that Donald Trump has ever made in, in, in honest sincerity or in stupidity, you know, whichever one uh, is now ascribed to uh, million, tens of millions of people who voted for him. That, that is what you all believe. All of you are like this. How could you do this? You're all awful. Conversely, and, and, you know, not so much after the election, obviously, but leading up to the election, if you voted for Hillary Clinton or if you supported Hillary Clinton, you are clearly for uh, corruption. Uh, you're clearly for insider manipulation of, you know, everything from elections to markets, uh, you know, to, to access. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're for uh, essentially looking the other way for insiders when they break the law. And, and by the way, the whole email thing I did find silly throughout the whole campaign uh, not only because it was an issue, but because of, you know, what she, how she reacted and handled it. I think in hindsight, we can all say that. Um, the thing that I found disturbing about the email thing was that the reason why she wanted a private email server in the first place was because she didn't want everybody reading her email, right? You, if you're a public official here in Minnesota, uh, all of your emails are public, not your private emails, your emails that you know, send to your wife or your kids or, you know, your business emails, but any government correspondence, if you email the city administrator, if you email, uh, you know, if you email another council member, all of those are public. I mean, public as in the public can at any time request them and they get them. They are public. There is nothing hidden about government. And, and that's really I mean, I, I realize that that's not the way it is in every 50 state. Um, but except for classified information, that's pretty much how it is at the federal level too. And she did not want that. And I understand why, because if you are obsessed with secrecy and privacy and, and, you know, uh, to me, very anti-democratic things, uh, that's not what you want. Right. And so what happened was, uh, all of these people who voted for or supported for, you know, Hillary Clinton were now in league with that, Right. How uh, you're you're obviously uh, part of the elite. You're one of the insiders. Uh, you're supporting that whole machine. It, th- there was never any recognition, and you know I I I, I I'm laying this on all of us, it, both sides. You know of our left right divide. There was never any recognition that really uh, a small minority of people wanted these candidates. You know, the, 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 these would in no way have been the candidates that would have emerged 
in say like a survivor kind of, you know, candidate place or a, an American idol kind of candidate race. Right. Like if we were, if it wasn't for, you know, on the, on the Republican side, uh, this kind of very narrow band, this, this broad base of candidates and this one that was very different than the rest, uh, the split support, all this stuff, they, the, the, the just kind of crazy way that the primary worked out, you would never have gotten a Donald Trump. Uh, on on the on the left on the Democrat side, you know it was clear that if you know the Democratic Party hadn't essentially been shills for uh, one specific candidate, and you know whether it's super delegates or whether it's you know campaign funding or or what have you, uh, kind of wired things in one way, uh, you probably wouldn't have got the candidate you got on that side either. So all of a sudden now, we are staring across this no man's land, this abyss. Uh, looking at the standard bearer of the other party and then associating every single person with that party with, you know, the absolute worst of what that party is, uh, of, of what that candidate is in our eyes. And it's just deeply painful. It's just deeply, deeply painful for me uh, to sit and look at this. You know, I, I travel around the country. I, I go to cities big and small. I, I talk to people that you know, the rights would consider elites, you know, professionals, people highly educated, uh, people making policy decisions. I talk with people that uh, the the left has now labeled, you know, racist and ignorant and, and what have you, um, you know, deplorable, <laughs> uh, you, you know, people out there trying to make a go of it, uh, people out there who don't feel like the system is working for them. And when I talk to them, when I talk to them about strong towns, they're with me. They're, they're all with me. They all look at it and they all get it. There's a certain sense that the things we've set up, the systems we've set up just are not working. The way we have gone about putting America together right now just is broken. It's not working. And I'm a history guy. I mean, I love to look back at history and, and, there was this part of me that recently became obsessed with World War One, and how, you know, things in the world were starting to feel a little bit like the period of time before World War One, where people were drawing up sides and 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 drawing up alliances and, uh, you know, kind of triangulating themselves and and kind of the, the geopolitical tinder was being set and and you know. Uh, gasoline was being poured over it and it was just waiting for the proverbial match to kind of light it all aflame. I, I, I've, I've not, I've, I've, I've not dropped that completely, but, but I have kind of backed up my historical reference a little bit um, to two different periods of time. The, the one that brought us uh, Andrew Jackson and also the one that brought us uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And I, I think those two are very, two very important people to look at because Andrew Jackson um, is largely looked at today in the course of history as being um, in a, in a, you know, in a, in a generous way, a transformative figure because he uh, you know, kind of broke out of the genteel kind of governing class. You know, he defeated John Quincy Adams, who was the son of a president, uh, been there before, right? Uh, he defeated him, and um, you know the the idea was that uh, now the presidency had passed to a, a common person, a, a commoner, someone who is not part of the uh, the ruling class, the elites. 
And there was a certain kind of throw the bums out mentality and also kind of a, a certain elitist uh, fear and panic in the reaction as well. Now, was Andrew Jackson a great president? I don't know. He's, he's on one of our currencies. He certainly did a lot of things to change the direction of the country, and I, I think a lot of them in a good way. He also was a pretty like despotic, de- deplorable kind of person. Uh, you know, the trail of tears, uh, a, a lot of the, the things he did with Native Americans were just horrific. Um, you know, so I, I'm not advocating uh, him as a, a great person, but certainly one of those kind of transformative elections where the ruling elites were uh, uh, shocked and abhorred at the, at the change that things took. Yet, you know, the country continued on and in many ways, I think, became a, a better, uh, more, uh, more equal kind of place, really. Um, but Teddy Roosevelt is the one that I, I think is even more interesting because Teddy Roosevelt, everybody, not everybody, but most people look back in history at Teddy Roosevelt in a, in a positive way. Yet Teddy Roosevelt himself was like, if nothing but controversial, right? I mean, uh, the Rough Rider, he was very pro-World War I. He, he was, uh, when he was in retirement as an ex-president, he was, uh, you know, very um, outspoken trying to get Woodrow Wilson to go to war and, uh, you know, to, to the point of just uh, terrible agitation. But if you, if you back up uh, and look at Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, the thing that I think he is known for the most, well, today we like to nostalgize him as the, the National Parks president. But really, from a historical standpoint, it's the trust busting. It's the idea that the industrial economy had reached a point of monopolization where it just simply wasn't working anymore. And what we needed to do uh, is bust up these large monopolies, these large uh, trusts, and spread them out into a lot smaller companies. We, we had to uh, in a sense, uh, localize our economy again. We, we had to uh, separate these massive corporate interests from each other. Now, this is, a, this is a period of time when the government was incredibly small, right? The, these were massive overreaches of government power in the context of the day. Because the government, I mean, the, the, the total take of GDP of the government was something like two and a half percent or three percent. It was something really, really small. I mean, today we're at twenty one percent, twenty two percent. Just to give you some reference, this was a this was a very, very different day. Um, but the idea that uh, in an economy that had gone through industrialization, that we had reached a point where our economic system had become essentially ex- exploitative. And that you needed someone to come in and bust that up, break that up, and kind of set things right so that we could get back to, uh, you know, a a more American principled economy uh, was something that appealed to a lot of people. It appealed to a lot of people. I'm not suggesting that's where we are today. And I'm not suggesting that Donald Trump is that guy or that, you know, that's necessarily why he was elected. Um, I will say... And I, you know, I, I was talking to my wife about who I was going to vote for. And I, I, I don't, uh, I know you guys are going to read into this too much. So maybe I should just, I did not vote for Donald Trump and I did not vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, I, I did not feel like either of them deserved my vote. And in fact, uh, the way I made up my mind about who I was going to vote is I actually went through the, the party. I, I actually read the platforms of each party 
And I said, um, I can't vote for a person because I, I, I don't feel like any of these people really deserve my vote as people. And so the next best thing is I'm going to vote for the platform that I think most closely represents what I think and what I believe. Uh, in that case, I wound up voting for the Libertarian Party. Um, we're a 501c3. That's not an endorsement. Uh, I didn't come out and say that before the election, so I'm not trying to sway your vote. I'm, I'm telling you what I did as a way to kind of explain some of these other things. Uh, when my wife and I were talking about Donald Trump, she was asking me, like, how would you, how would you ever think about voting for him? How could you ever vote for, for Donald Trump? Um, and, you know, I, I, I said, you know, he's actually said some things that I, you know, really like, what are the, what are the things that at the federal level I would like to see done? And so we started to list them, right? Like, I think the federal reserve is absolutely out of control. I, I think the purchasing of, of all, all these mortgages. I think the propping up of the housing market, I think the distortion of the housing market, I think the buying of corporate bonds. I, I think the incestuous relationship between wall street and the government is destroying this country. Which candidate actually talked about that? Well, there's only one. There really was only one. And that was Donald Trump. Um, Hillary Clinton didn't talk about that. Uh, Hillary Clinton wouldn't do anything about that. There was only one candidate who, who talked about that. Uh, I, I don't like the big top-down uh, infrastructure projects. I, I, I think the idea of funding uh, massive highways, uh, you know, massive like out-of-scale infrastructure investments from the federal government at the local level is just the wrong way to go about things. We've been talking about this for months here in the context of this election season and, and person after person after person. And we have tried really hard to get people all across the political spectrum and from all different kinds of walks of life. They've said, you know, generally give the money to the mayors. Th that's where the action is today. That that's, you know, we've reached a point where there's only so much we can do from Washington DC. Now we actually have to get small and fine grained. And, and I, that's what I believe. Who, who said that? Who said that in the election? Well, no candidate did. No candidate did. Right. Um, so, you know, when, when we start to go through the things that I think need to be done, uh, I, I, you know, if you look at just the infrastructure issue, uh, I, I, I have said for a long time that I, I think a party that is more for devolving power, uh, than one that is for centralizing it is more in line with, uh, you know, at the federal level in particular, where we would end up, where we should be in terms of at least our capital investments, right? At least our capital investments. Um, you know, there, there was there was one party that talked about that, and that was the Republican Party. I'm not here saying that this is a great outcome. Um, don't get me wrong. I, I, I think that whatever the outcome of this campaign was, it, it wasn't going to go well. But I think it wasn't going to go well, not because uh, of, of how people voted, I think it was going to go well because from the start, it was just flawed. It was just wrong. We're debating issues at the wrong place, in the wrong way, in, in the wrong context. I'll go back to like a really, really popular program, Safe Routes for Schools, right? Safe Routes to School. How can anybody be against Safe Routes to School, right? It's a tiny little pittance of money. It's to help kids get to school safely. Like, how can you be against that, Chuck? Like, what, what is wrong with that? And I, I think it is a terrible program. I think it's a terrible program. 
And I think it's a terrible program, not because I'm against walking. I'm not. I'm like a big, huge advocate for what I think walking infrastructure is the number one thing we need in this country. I'm against it because it's the wrong place to be having the conversation. It's the wrong place. Now, I know people will say, well, Chuck, you know, if we don't have it there, where are we going to have it? It's not happening in my city. If Washington doesn't push it, who's going to push it? Yeah, it, it, you know what? Washington pushing it actually discredits it. It actually makes it further away from you. It makes it like a something of the elites instead of, as I'm telling you, with these strong towns conversations we have around the country, something that we are doing for ourselves, something that we are doing because it makes sense for us, right? A while back, I did a podcast with John Dominic Crossan. Um, he is a, a New Testament scholar. And we, we talked about a, a book that he had written about... Um, you know, reading the Bible and, 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 and violence in the Bible and all this. And I, I love the guy. I mean, I, I really like his work and I've enjoyed talking to him over the years. I, I've had him on the podcast a couple of times. He's a, he's a really good man. He's a really generous guy. But after we released that podcast, I got this flood of, of emails from you, our, our listeners going, Chuck, what, what is this Jesus stuff? Like, what are you doing? Like, where, where did this come from? Uh, why, are, why are we talking about this now? And I had to do a follow-up podcast right after that to, to kind of give you some context. And that follow-up podcast went something like this. It was like, hey, uh, things are going to get bad. Um, things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. Uh, you know, we, we, a big part of the, the Strong Town's message is that we're living in a Ponzi scheme. That this illusion of wealth we've created uh, uh, because of the way we have grown has uh, given us a level of comfort and disconnect uh, completely out of scale with where we're actually at. And that reset back to normalcy is going to be really, really painful. And whether your delusion comes from the left, where you think we can have, you know, endless uh, social programs that we don't have to pay for and, you know, endless uh, spending on whatever that we don't have to pay for, and, uh, you know, endless infrastructure spending that we can just get right from the federal level or whether your delusion comes from the right where, you know, we're going to cut taxes, uh, but raise money on defense and raise money on highway spending and raise money on subsidizing home mortgages. Uh, you know, I don't care where your delusion comes from. It's going to be destroyed. It's going away. Um, you know, we're reaching the end of when this Ponzi scheme generates that illusion of wealth, that illusion of wealth that keeps us out of touch with our fundamental insolvency and our insolvency at the block, neighborhood, city level. That reset is going to be really, really painful, really painful, really painful. And, you know, I, I've tried to point out in the past, it, it, it's one thing to have a civil rights movement and civil rights legislation and, uh, you know, uh, what, whatever your social ambition is, it's, it's, it's one thing to do those things in a period of, uh, of affluence, right? In a, you know, it's one thing to pass a civil rights legislation when our economy is booming and, and there's essentially enough to go around. Um, gi giving some to you does not, is not come in an environment where anything is taken away from me. Uh, giving something to you happens in a time when we're all uh, uh, having plenty, right? That conversation changes dramatically 
in a country where regardless of what the policy is, we're all going to experience life a, a little bit less, right? I don't, I don't think we're going to become a non-affluent country. I think we're still going to be ridiculously affluent in comparison to the rest of the world. But in comparison to what we think ourselves is affluent, uh, we're going to feel really poor, really poor. You know, there's a saying, uh, if you want to feel rich, go hang out with poor people. Well, <laughs> we're a country that hangs out with rich people because we hang out with ourselves, right? So just being like moderately successful is going to feel really, really poor. I had Domin John Dominic Crossan on and, and, and we had the conversation we did because we have to uh, start talking to each other again. Um, and, and my prism for that is, is you know, I don't want to say my prism is a Jesus prism. It, it's, it's really not. But, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. Uh, I'm a Catholic. I, I go to church weekly. I, I find a lot of, um, uh, I find a, a lot of inspiration and a lot of peace in the, the message of Jesus and the way that I, I think Jesus has tried to um, demonstrate uh, for us a, a life that is moral and virtuous. And I find a lot of inspiration in that. And I, I wanted to kind of bring that into the conversation because I think things are going to get harder. And when things get harder, there's one of two ways we can go. We can go crazy uh, or we can come closer together. And I, I, I just pray. I think we have to do the latter, right? I mean, the latter is what we have to, what, as Strong Towns advocates, we have to be dedicated to doing the latter, in, in the day after the election, I, I posted a thing on Facebook and um, I, I, I really tried to capture my sense, uh, which was, hey, before you, um, before you start gloating about a win, um, before you start, you know, castigating people for how they voted for, for a loss and, and understand, I maybe have a very unique position uh, in the American conversation in that I, I, I probably have equal parts <laughs> left and right in my my Facebook feed. Uh, I'm uh, I'm someone who has the benefit of having a lot of different perspectives in my face all the time. Uh, so my my thought was, you know, before you have your your knee jerk reaction to this election result, ask yourself this: How much time have you spent among the people on the other side of that no man's land, right? You look over and you look at a candidate and you believe that candidate signifies, you know, what you see as the worst in that candidate, so, you know, all the flaws. Uh, you, you believe that everybody lined up behind that candidate is in 100% lockstep with all of those flaws or, or you know, is, is at least accepting of them in some way. Like they're, they're, but before you agree with that, before you go there, how much time have you spent with them? How much do you really know them? And my challenge was not, you know, to accept an outcome of an election or not. I, I really, you know, go protest, go do whatever you want. It's, it's not me, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not upset about it. Uh, my thought was, if we're going to not let this happen again, we all need to talk to each other. Um, we need to make a, a conscious choice to lower the, the, the volume of our own assumptions, right? Um, to become less assuming about what we think we know and more humble uh, in acknowledging what we don't know. 
And we actually need to try as hard as we can to empathize with people who, who, who don't seem a lot like us. The funny thing is, I think if, you know, if, if you're whatever side of the spectrum you're on, you, you're actually calling for that, right? You're actually trying to do that. Um, I, I had, a, I had a, a, a talk with a pastor at a church today. And he asked me a question, and, and I won't get into it, but I'll, 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 I'll tell you the, one of the ways I answered him is by saying I, I used to sit in church when I was younger. And I used to sit in church, and I would listen to the, the homily or the readings. And I would sit there, and I would think, oh, my gosh, I wish this person could hear this now. <laughs> right? I would sit there and go, I, 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 wish, I wish this other like deeply flawed individual was here to listen about how we should all be humble Christians, right? Or how we should all be merciful or how we should all be, uh, you know, willing to forgive. And I, I remember just thinking like my reaction was, you know, I, I, I wish this other person was here. And there was a day and I, I don't really know exactly the day, but I, I do remember the feeling when it dawned on me and, and I'm, 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 I'm giving you an insight into my immaturity uh, and, and hopefully my, my growth as a human being. But when it actually dawned on me that it wasn't someone else who should be listening to this message, it's, it's me. Um, you know, Jesus said, uh, you know, don't, don't care about the, the splinter in your neighbor's eye until you've taken care of the, the plank in your own. And I am, I am guilty of that in many ways. Um, I sit there and I, I hear these messages and I think, oh, I wish this other person could hear this. You know, that, that would convince them. And it, what I'm saying is that would convince them that I'm right and they're wrong, right? I've been, I, I, I've been all across this country. We're all right and we're all wrong. And I really think deeply that the, the lesson we have to take away from this election cycle is that we need to talk to each other. We need to listen to each other. We need to understand each other better. We, 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 this goes beyond a candidate, right? I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, fall in line behind your president or, or, or you know, any, I'm not suggesting anything like that. Continue to fight like cats and dogs politically. I don't, I don't care. But just don't, you know, don't, I, I watch Stephen Colbert. I love him. I think he's hilarious. Don't turn him on and think that that represents America, right? Um, I don't listen to Rush Limbaugh much anymore. I have a, a, a tiny bit, but you can't turn on Rush Limbaugh and think that that represents America. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. If you want to understand America, you've got to get out and talk to people and you've got to listen, listen, listen. And we've got to be humble and we've got to, you know, put ourselves in other people's shoes. I really feel like Strong Towns has a, as a, as a, you know, a very important role to play today in the future of our country. We're, we're, you know, I, I look at people who are trying to make changes in policy in way we approach our cities and, and largely they're part of this establishment that has now been rejected and really rejected by, in, in both parties. I mean, the, the, the talk a week ago was how Donald Trump has eviscerated and destroyed the Republican party and that he has, and now he has done the same thing to the Democratic Party, right? The, the establishment was rejected. Uh, when we start talking about building strong cities and strong towns and strong neighborhoods, 
when we start talking about empowering people at the local level, when we start talking about Jimmy's Pizza instead of Walmart, when we start talking about walking across the street instead of, you know, millions of dollars of, of you know, highway improvements to get to the, the big box store on the edge of town, what we're really talking about is empathy and empathizing with people where they are today. And saying, how do we go out and actually understand the real problems they face and in a humble, servant-like way, actually start to try to address those problems? If you have that mindset, if you have that approach, you can't do that at the federal level. You just can't. You can't. It doesn't work. There's no way. There's no way to have, have empathy at, at that level. You've got to actually get out and meet people. You've got to actually get out and empower them. You actually have to, uh, you know, work at a fine grain level. I, I, I think that if you look back to Teddy Roosevelt and say, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was the right person for his time. Uh, but then you, you know, took Teddy Roosevelt and put him as president in the 1960s or, or the 1850s. He probably would have made like a total mess of it, right? He probably would have made like a, a horrific mess. His bull in the china closet kind of approach um, you know, his overreaching, what, what have you. He's the wrong person at the time. But at, at the time, what needed to happen is that the industrial economy needed to be reset to something else. Today, our post-Cold War, globalized, centralized economy needs to be reset to something else. A big part of that conversation is strong towns. And I just want to reassure all of you, I know this is scary, it's going to get scarier. I know this is crazy. It's going to get crazier. We have to be the voice of reason. We have to be the voice of prudence. We have to be the voice that is pushing this country in, in, in a direction of all of us working together in our local communities, respectfully, rationally, to make the best of, of what is a really tough reset. We can be the difference makers. And I, I'm, I'm very sorry for all of you that, that, you know, have experienced pain in the last 48 hours or, or in the last, you know, number of weeks. I really, I, I, I'm deeply sorry. I'm deeply sorry that this country had to go through what, what we just did. And I, I'm sorry that the outcome is, is painful to a, a lot of people. Um, I don't like it. I, I don't like it. I, I, I don't like where we are. Um, but we won't make it better by continuing to look across the, the no man's land, across the abyss, at the other side and not understanding them. We've we got to go out there in a truce. We've got to put up the white flag. We've got to you know, get, out the, get out the soccer ball like they did in the trenches in World War I uh, at Christmas time and, and, and play some games together and uh, get to know each other in a, in a very personal way. And then we can start talking about how we rebuild our cities, how we rebuild our towns, how we rebuild our neighborhoods together at, at a scale and at a level that our economy desperately needs right now, our people desperately need, uh, our, our society desperately needs. Strong towns, advocates, we've got to be the, the builders, the builders of these connections, the builders of these uh, these understandings, we gotta we gotta work at the fine grain. We gotta make this happen. I, I really um, 
draw a lot of strength from all of you and I'm very thankful and grateful uh, that you're here. Uh, hang with us. Uh, we're, uh, we're not going anywhere and uh, our movement's going to continue to grow and grow and grow and uh, we're going to be the difference makers. So thanks everybody and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. <laughs>